0: Story. One weekend, actually, the first part is narrative. Author Paul Tripp gave his teenage son permission to spend the weekend at a friend's house. But during the weekend, Paul received a call from the friend's mother, informing him that Paul's son was not at her home. Her son had felt guilty about covering for Paul's son and confessed to his mom. After Paul told his wife about their son's deception, Paul said, Luella could feel my anger, and she said, I think you need to pray. I said, I don't think I can pray for him right now. She said, I didn't mean for you to pray for him. I think you need to pray for you. (laughs) Paul writes, I went to my bedroom to pray for God's help, and it hit me that because of his love, God had already begun a work of rescue in my son's life. God was the one who pressed in on the conscience of my son's friend, causing him to confess to his mom. God was the one who gave her the courage to make that difficult call to me. And God was the one giving me time to get a hold of myself before my son came home. Now, rather than wanting to rip into my son, I wanted to be part of what God and the God of grace was doing in this moment of rebellion, deception, hurt, and disappointment. After giving his son a couple of hours to relax upon his return, Paul asked him if they could talk. Do you ever think about how much God loves you, Paul asked his son. Sometimes, he answered, Do you ever think how much God's grace operates in your life every day? His son looked up, but didn't speak. Do you know how much God's grace was working in your life even this weekend? Who told you, he asked. (laughs) Paul said, you have lived your life in the light You've made good choices. You've been an easy son to parent, but this weekend you took a step toward darkness. You can live in the darkness if you want. You can learn to lie and deceive. You can use your friends as your cover. You can step over God's boundaries, or you can determine to live in God's light. I'm pleading with you don't live in the darkness. Live in the light. As I turned to walk away, Paul wrote, I heard his voice from behind me saying, Dad, don't go. As I turned around with tears in his eyes, he said, Dad, I want to live in the light, but it's so hard. Will you help me? Now, I totally relate to the story on multiple levels. I relate to the sun when I was in the son's position. I relate to the dad when I was in the dad's position. And I relate to that story now as I cry out to my father, would you please help me to live in the light? So this is a day that we wanna learn about what it is to live in the light. So I have a question for you. It's a question for the day. Would you like to live in the light? And would you like help doing that? That's what today is all about. And we're in week three of Jesus' very usual, unusual use of the word, the two words, I am. And so far, there's just been cryptic hints of how weird it is the way he uses these claims that he makes with the words, I am. Today, towards the end of our message, we get a bold and clear, really strange use of the words so that we understand precisely what Jesus is claiming. But we begin today with his claim, I am the light of the world. Hello, I'm Jim Hammond. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. We're jumping right in, and point number one is this. Whoever follows me will have the light. Whoever follows me will have the light. So let's take a look at that verse. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, this saying has its power not just by the words alone, but as always, we need to find out when he said it, what was the setting for his saying it, and how does it fit in that setting, because that makes this saying even more powerful once you understand it. In John chapter 7, Jesus Decided to delay before going to the Feast of Tabernacles, and he then comes to the Feast of Tabernacles. We're still at the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 8, and also continues some of the things beyond that at the Feast of Tabernacles. A little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles, also called the Feast of Booths. It was the largest attended feast, from my understanding. It lasted a week long. All the Jews would gather to Jerusalem and they would camp out near the temple and they would remember how they were once sojourners, that God was their Savior who saved them out of their Egyptian bondage for 400 years and released them and they followed God in his visible manifest presence in the sign of the glory cloud... The pillar of fire by night, the pillar of smoking cloud by day, and wherever that cloud would go, they would follow. And from that moment on, throughout their wilderness experience, the cloud would rest in their midst, or hover in their midst, and would be at their tabernacle. When later on the tabernacle becomes the temple a fixed structure, that cloud filled the structure, the glory of God's presence. Now, at the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, everybody comes and sets up their booth. Like a, we would think of a tent camping. They literally made their mobile home, home structure to remember how they traveled through the wilderness into the promised land following their God. And so it makes sense now that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me shall have the light of life. And will never live in darkness. This is a huge claim of Jesus. But if you just understand those words alone, you're missing how huge the claim is. Because now he's claiming to be a light. Imagine the scene. They literally had these huge... Uh, Vats of oil, far above the heads of the people, that the priests—and it had to be a young priest—would go up a ladder and fill these big bowls with these oil. This oil, and then the oil structure was attached with um, this rather large wicks. Too much information. Made of used priestly garments, and. They would then light the wicks and there's written documentation about how glorious all the lit lights glistened off the walls and lit not only the entire temple precincts, but half of Jerusalem and everybody's lighting lights and singing through the night, etc., etc. It's after the lighting of the lights, far above their heads, representing the glory of God in his presence at the temple, which was the glory of God in the light that they followed through the wilderness, that Jesus says, I am the light of the world. So they're totally focused on God demonstrating that he is their savior, he is their God, he is their light, that Jesus stands up, a mere man from everybody's vantage point on street level, listening to him shout a claim that he is the light of the world. You saw the light of the world that saved us from the Egyptians? I am the light of not just Israel. I am the light of the world. This huge crowd is too small. It's no longer just a nation that I am leading. I am leading the world into light out of their darkness, out of their bondage, into freedom. Woo-hoo-hoo, this is his claim. And woo-hoo-hoo, this is his claim. Huge controversy immediately ensues between religious leaders and the claim of Jesus. You see what I'm saying here? Context is huge for his statement and what he is saying here. Now, interestingly enough, This light, Jesus, who is the saving work of God as the manifest light was a visible manifestation of the saving work of God that they followed. He is now the saving work of God in personal form that they're following. This light is now going to divide people between those who follow and those who don't, those who are in light and those who are in darkness. So we're going to see that take place before our eyes as we read the text because that's what happens with his claim. But before we see that, we need to see that that's exactly what was the odd phenomenon with the pillar itself in their escape. Here's what we read in Exodus 14, 19 through 20. Then the angel of of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. Now, it's interesting that the pillar is called the angel. Think of it not as the angelic beings as we normally think, but the word itself is messenger. This is my opinion. You can do with it what you want. This messenger wasn't just the cloud an epiphany, a symbol, Jesus himself is present there, and he's claiming, I am the light of the world, now and then, more on this in a moment, but this cloud, we're reading right here, um, withdrew and went behind them, the scene is the Egyptian army Uh, with the pharaoh's change of mind again decides we can't let them all go we'll be destroyed economically we need to get them back sends his armies in chariots and by this time they're right at the base of the Red Sea ready to cross but they're at this little divided area that's just narrow the whole army can't come in like a big mass around them they gotta slip through the canyon like they slip through the canyon and then the pillar of glory comes between God's people and the enemies and it's shining right there upon the Israelites, but it is causing darkness to the enemies. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front, stood behind them, coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. That is one strange light. So on the one side, it's creating a darkness. It's pillar of clouds, smoky clouds just enough to where they can't pass. But it's total darkness to them. On the other side, it's a pillar of fire, brightness to Israel, watching their God do battle for them, keeping them from the army. They were all scared they're going to be obliterated by and it puts a distance or a barrier between them. This is exactly what's happening in Jesus in John chapter eight. His statement will divide the followers from the rejectors, and there's going to be with that division a light to some and a darkness to others. Jesus, by his claim, is claiming to be the visible manifestation Of the saving work of God. He is claiming more later but at least at this point he is claiming to be the visible manifestation of the saving work of God. And it looks like he's saying you need to follow me out of the wilderness of this world into the light of life which leads to the eternal promised land. Take that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> to quote Barney Fife. Anyway, a real solid guy. Now, so the idea is <laughs> the idea is that this. Exodus that took place that we're all commemorating right here in this huge feast that is like the pinnacle of who we are as a people is small stuff compared to the Exodus that this guy is claiming he's going to bring to the whole world, not just us. This is a huge claim. This is bigger than Exodus. It's the sequel. (laughs) And the sequel, in most cases, are usually not as good as the original, but this sequel is huge. It's bigger and better and this is what Jesus is claiming with this claim. So whoever follows me will have the light. Point number 2, refusing invites darkness. Refusing invites darkness. John 8:13 the Pharisees challenged him, here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Anybody can say what they want to say and you just said something, but it's not valid. Where's the authority? Where's the witnesses? Where's the testimony? Jesus doesn't even bother to go there because in chapter 5, and you need to go back and review it if you want, he gave a whole list to the same argument. Here's this witness, this witness, this witness, this witness, this witness. He gives a whole list of witnesses that the, those who reject him refuse to believe the witnesses. So they choose to be in darkness rather than check to see if the witnesses are actually verifying truth. So he doesn't even go there again. Instead, he escalates his confrontation with those who are rejecting him. Now, all we know, because we know the whole story, that he knows precisely what he's doing. He knows he's on his way to the cross. He knows that by such words, the cross is going to come and happen by the hand of these enemies. And that's Precisely the saving work that he's bringing to bring us as we follow him all the way to eternity. But watch as it unveils. He confronts them. We're going to skip as he, uh, it, it keeps getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Let's skip to verse 23 as it starts to get pretty hot. and He has some more I am claims. But he continued, you are from below. I am from above. And they're going, huh? Right? And always they misunderstand him with a shallow understanding of his claims and an overly literal interpretation. They're not sure what to do with this, but he just keeps driving it home. You are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am. Now notice I didn't read the he, and that's because the word he is implied in the verb. Okay, we don't like in English to have it dangling like that, but that's the point of his unusual use of this phrase, and so I'm going to leave it like that. And he's already used the I am twice, and now he's saying, you've got to believe I am. They're going, it's like puzzles to them that they don't understand until he makes it so clear they're ready to kill him, and that's coming in this chapter, we're going to get there. Okay. You will indeed die in your sins. Now, he has a particular use of using the I am. Now, in John's Gospel, you don't need to know this, but I'm going to tell you anyway. In John's Gospel, I am is ego, easy to remember because ego, I. Ego, a me, the verb to be, I am. Okay? When the Hebrew was translated into Greek, this phrase that we have in John is translated precisely this way ego emi and this is what John is recording Jesus to have said when he's recording it in Greek but notice what he's saying i told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that i am you will indeed die in your sins So he's making a claim about who he is that if you don't believe, it's a life and death consequence. Either you're going to believe and have life or you're not going to believe and you're going to have death. And he's not talking about just keeling over. He's talking about eternal consequences, eternal death or eternal life. It's all about whether you believe what he's claiming right here. Darkness on one side of the light, light on the other side of the light, Which side of the light do you want to be on? Accept him, reject him. He's making it so clear right here. Then they say, well, who are you? And they asked that. Just what I've been telling you from the beginning, Jesus replied. Now, I think that Polly had more of this tone. Who do you think you are? Not Who are you? We want to know. Okay? I really think it's more accusatory. Who in the world do you think you are to say these kinds of things? Okay? And interestingly enough, as we keep reading, Jesus is going to tell them in an unmistakable, undeniable way who he thinks he is. And so we continue. Point number three. Jesus claimed to be the I am. So we're going to take a little bit of time explaining that. What they immediately understood, because he used it the way he used it, some of us are going to be slow to catch up with why they're ready to stone him for saying what he said. So here we go. John 8, 56-59. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day, he saw it and was glad. Now, background, they know this. You need to know this just in case you don't know this. So in the argument, they're talking about Abraham. And then he just said, Abraham rejoiced at my day. You need to know that Abraham was 2000 BC. And if we say BC, we're talking about when Jesus arrived on the scene in birth as a man. Jesus, when he arrived on the scene in birth as a man, was 2000 years after Abraham, so here we stand, 2,000 some, approaching 30 years (laughs) or so, uh, and he's saying this, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Then he says, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Now, here is the use of the word that is so unmistakably unusual that there's no doubt about what his meaning is to them. Here's what we read next. At this, they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. You'll see this kind of thing frequently in John. It's not his time yet, so he slips away. Somehow the crowd slips away. and They can't, they can't do what they want to do yet. And John will explain why it's not his time to do it yet. It's not his hour to be crucified yet. That time is coming, and he will die at their hands, but it's not yet. So we need to figure out how they are so mad, why they're so furious. Why does this claim make them want to throw stones? We need Jewish context, Jewish background, and that's what we need to jump into. But let's make sure we understand the English first. If... Jesus was trying to say, I existed before Abraham existed. He wouldn't say, before Abraham was, I am. He said, before Abraham was, I was. But he's saying more than simply he's always existed. He is definitely claiming, without any mistake about it, this exclusive claim that only God can claim and I want to show you why. Okay? Exodus three thirteen through 14, Moses said to God, here's the scene. Moses, who is the one that uh, escapes to the wilderness himself because he had killed an Egyptian. He thought he was in a position to save his people. It was a miserable failure with his efforts, the way he thought he was going to do it. He is now wandering in the wilderness for himself for 40 years, and then he meets a, bush that won't go out. It's in flames and it's like not burning down. It's a phenomena. So he walks up to it and then there's booming voice of God speaking to him, telling him to take his sandals off because he's standing on holy ground. And it's this conversation ensues at the burning bush where God calls him to go back to Egypt because God is going to save his people. Moses is trying to argue with God, but this is the scene. At the end, when he convinces Moses that he is the guy, Moses wants a little bit more. He says, okay, if I am the guy and you are our God, what is your name? So I can tell them who you are. This is what we're reading, okay? In the beginning, whoops, too far. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you and they asked me what is his name then what shall I tell them God said to Moses I am who I am this is what you are to say to the Israelites I am has sent me to you in verse 15 he says I am the Lord of Abraham Isaac and Jacob he is that Lord he's the one that's made covenants with them but he's now giving a definition of what it means to be Lord Yahweh Lord, Yahweh is the I am. I am who I am. Okay. We need to understand what that means. Everything else that comes into being has a starting point. The I am who I am is alpha and omega, beginning and end. There is no starting point of God. God is the self-existent, I am who I am, nobody started me, I just am. Everything else that you see or can conceive of is because I am. I am always subject, I am not object, I am who I am, and I am the self-existent God, the Lord, who has identified himself before your forefathers as Yahweh. Tell them, I am has sent me. There is no other God. I am. Got it? Jesus is now saying, before Abraham was, I am. Now they're picking up stones to kill the guy who's claiming the name of God in a way that only God can claim. And so now it's up to us to decide which group to be associated with. The rejecter of the one who makes this audacious claim who actually had witnesses and authority and substantiation before this point of miracles of John the Baptist, the prophet, pointing him out as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As the John the Baptist pointing out that he is the one, the Messiah. And the Spirit is doing works through him. The Father is is putting his stamp of approval. His voice actually boomed at Jesus' baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. There's been witnesses, but they want to reject all those witnesses, and so they're going to reject his claim as well. Who are we going to stand with? The rejecters who choose the path of darkness or the acceptors who choose to follow? What did God tell Moses his name was? I am. Why does God call himself that? He's the self-existent eternal being that everything else comes from. By the way, every person has to figure out where does everything come from? If it doesn't come from God, you have to have an eternal self-existent something. And now science is going, there's nothing, bang, everything, without a self-existent something from which everything comes from? Explain that with science. They can't. Their faith is bigger than mine. Nothing to everything bang? What's self-existent? What caused everything? There's no cause. God says, I am the self-existent cause. If you're believing in science, you're believing in something that has no cause. Nothing, everything, and just a bang to explain it. There's theories, but there's no cause. Jesus claimed to be one in essence with God. I've skipped some things, didn't I, back there? I just get going. <laughs> what did I skip? I <laughs> never. There's the ones about following that I wanted to get a hold of, what it means to follow. Can you find for me, I don't even know where it is on my notes, uh, John 8, 31. Thank you. Even as he spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching. Now he's even going to carefully define what it means to follow. If you hold to my teaching, everybody so far is holding to Moses' teaching. If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. He's making huge claims there. Now find verse 51. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word, now it's not just holding his words like, I know this, I believe this. It has to go to, I obey this. This is what it looks like to follow the light, okay? Transport yourself out of 2023 where we have redefined what it means to follow. I follow them, I follow them, I follow them, I follow them. It's like, I'm their fan. I'm gonna track information about them. I believe that, I believe that. I think they're awesome. I, th- I would like to be associated with them. I'm their follower, social media, duh. No, this is not it, Following means holding to their teaching and obeying that teaching and living in that teaching, literally following in steps of Jesus. That's following. And Jesus wants to be that clear. If you follow me, you are going to find your way out of the darkness and into the light, into the eternal kingdom. Now, all of this stuff, I'm way over time, whew, um, all of this stuff has been carefully laid down and prepared for us by John even before we get here. And I'm gonna skip that part. But if you, if you want to uh, look them up, it's all in verses one through 18 of the beginning of the gospel where he just lays out who Jesus is and we have enough information already in the introduction that everything Jesus says about himself has already been explained to us even in the introduction of the good news about Jesus. We're gonna finish this way. We're going to go back to the story we started with. Paul Tripp's question Have you taken a step toward the darkness? You can live in the darkness if you want. You can learn to lie and deceive. You can use your friends as your cover. You can step over God's boundaries, or you can determine to live in God's light. I'm pleading with you don't live in the darkness. Now, if you don't want to live in the darkness, and we all do, apart from Jesus, what do you have to do? You have to turn to the light. And as you turn to the light, he is telling you, come with me. He's going to actually help you. And by helping you with his light, you're going to be among the followers of light and you're going to see the light. You're going to see the path. You're going to want the light. You're going to want his path. Walk in it. Now, Before Jesus, we would just say, turn to God. As we turn to God the Father for his help, God the Father says, turn to my son. I've sent my son to absorb your darkness, and his light will displace all the darkness inside of you. By faith, turn to him, and he will displace it by placing his light of life right within you. And every vestige of darkness that's got a hold on you will have to move just as a light, a candle lit will make darkness flee. When you invite his light into your life, you yourself become the light of the world because the light of the world is in you. So if you want to walk out of darkness, you need to cry out to God today and God says the way you cry out for God today is turn to Jesus and let him Absorb your darkness, repent so that he can do that, receive and take it away on the cross so that he can release his light in you and you are now empowered by his spirit to be able to say no to that thing that's tempting you. Every time you're tempted, turn back to the father who will point you to the son, who will give you the spirit, the three in one envelop you and you will walk amongst those who are following the light from here with life, eternal life now to eternity into the eternal promised land. Prayer people, would you go ahead and go over there? If there's anybody that has needing to make that turn today, would you just walk over to the prayer team and have them pray for you and say, I am turning from my darkness. You can decide to define it or not decide to define it. You need to turn from your darkness and ask for help and ask them to pray for you. And I think that with that reality, you're going to see a difference this week and follow Jesus. Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your clarity. Thank you for uh, your audacious claim, which is truth. We embrace your truth. And by the truth, we will be set free. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming and setting us free. By your victory, it's in your name and your power. Thank you. Amen. See you next week.